Welcome to the Venture 12 podcast. This mini-series is brought to you in collaboration with the Movement Leaders Collective. The word apostle comes from the word apostello, meaning sent one. Sent to pioneer, innovate, build and develop new and transformative initiatives to spread the Kingdom of God. In five episodes, we get to encounter five women serving in apostolic ministry today. Their challenge has been to compellingly present to you five historical female figures and why they should be entered into the Apostolic Hall of Fame. Five contemporary apostles, five historic apostles, 30 minutes per episode. This is the Apostolic Hall of Fame. Welcome, Christy Lothammer, to the Venture 12 podcast and this collaboration between Venture 12 and the Movement Leaders Collective. Really excited to have you here and that you wanted to share one of your apostolic heroes with us today. Do you want to tell us something about who you are and then tell us who your hero is? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm Christy Lothamer. I hail um, the moment from Bicester, England, which is just about 10 miles outside of Oxford. And um, yeah, we we moved here uh, about 12 years ago to do some church planting and then more recently um, leading a network of microchurches. Great, exciting life to be leading microchurches. I'm sure we'll dig into that a a bit more later. Uh, And you've decided to share one of your Uh, one of your heroes with us today to enter uh, a very special lady into the Apostolic Hall of Fame uh, together with a podcast today. And who have you chosen? Yeah, for sure. Uh, The woman at the well, which the Eastern Orthodox Church um, gave her the name Fotini. Mm -hmm. So we'll go with that. We'll call her Fotini. Great. Well, you will have 10, mi- 10 minutes to share with us as to why you think she deserves a place in the Apostolic Hall of Fame. And then we'll have a chat after. Thank you. All right. Super. So if you have been following along at all with the storytelling in the Chosen series, um, you may have seen a fresh vision of who the woman at the well was. Um, if you haven't, let me introduce you to her. So the Eastern Orthodox Church tells an interesting oral history of the woman at the well, and they give her the name Saint Fotini. Their tradition tries to capture some of the story of what happened after John 4, which is the passage we find her story in. They say that she, along with her five sisters and her two sons, became traveling missionaries, preaching the gospel, and baptizing to the attention of Nero, who tried to stop them, by beating their hands, throwing them in prison, throwing them in a physical fire. They were forced to drink poison. And all those that I've just listed happened to them without any ill effect. Until the point where... The other seven are um, beheaded and Fotini herself thrown into the bottom of a deep well. One not unlike the one where she had originally met Jesus in the middle of the noonday sun. Now, if you remember the story, scripture tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. And eventually he came to the village of Sychar near the field of Jacob where um, this was given by Joseph. 
and Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, I'm kind of reading from the scriptures now, tired from his long walk, he sat wearily beside the well at about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village, and we know the story where he begins to engage her, ask her questions. She um, comes back to him with her own questions, and they have this little, um, what I've come to respect now is this little theological banter, and she kind of held her own a little bit, you know. Um, But Jesus goes on to invite her into living water, and he reveals to her that he is the Messiah. And then we read um, how Jesus had a prophetic word for her that just floored her, which I love that part, too. Um, We know that from an understanding of the cultural norms as recorded in history from that time, that she was at the well at noonday because she couldn't go with the women who would normally go in the morning. So there was something about her um, lifestyle, her reputation, that she felt shame and um, went there at a time when she could be alone. And Jesus did this beautifully prophetic thing where he speaks about her physical needs and her spiritual needs in this layered or like onion style metaphor, um, speaking to her of water and thirst and quenching her thirst. Um, physical in speech, but spiritual in intention. And she's quite perceptive. I love that about her, calling him first a Jew, then she calls him sir, then she called him a prophet, and eventually Christ. And this revelation came to her from that word of knowledge where he told her things that um, only she would have known, you know. Jesus revealed her life history and her spiritual eyes were opened. And the churches, I think, wrongly read in the, read into the text this woman's sinfulness. Um, you read the text, the reality of it is we don't know why she had been married or divorced five times. Um, in that day, we know that only men could divorce. So I'm not making a claim that she was perfect. You know, she she probably had a story like all of us do. But I'm, I think that we often focus too much on the sinfulness of who she was and don't give her the credit for um, she probably had a pretty hard life. She had been left high and dry at least five times and was on her own. We... Um, yeah, I just think we've wrongly assumed some things about her. And I think in doing so, we've missed some remarkable key points about her story as well. First, she was a woman with a holy discontent. You know, she held her own in that theological discussion. She knew about worship and she knew the tension between the two, you know, the Jews and the Samaritans and where they could and couldn't worship. And I think she was asking deep questions. They kind of come out of her pondering the nuances of faith. Um, she challenged Jesus as to why were there two places of worship and which one was the best. And look at how she engages him. And then later the townspeople with questions, you know, she went to them and told them, come see a man that told me everything I could do. Could he be the Messiah? You know, she's like pretty crafty. She asked a question rather than just telling them something. And I just think this is a woman with a holy discontent and a desire to find answers. She felt the the sting of religious division among those who worship Yahweh, which was divided by their ethnicity. And I love that about her. She was also a woman who took her own missionary identity serious. She had a profound experience of being known by Jesus, and her immediate response is to go and tell others. The missionary identity comes to each and every one of us when we are simultaneously called to Jesus and sent by him. 
And I love, if you've been watching The Chosen, how they bring out this little detail in the script they wrote where they, where um, she says, I must go tell everyone. And Jesus says to her, I was counting on it. She was also, in my mind, um, certainly an apostolic evangelist. You know, we read in the scripture that she left her water jar, ran to the village, come and see this man. Could he be the, the Messiah? And then we read that um, the whole town came out to see him and Jesus spends two days with them. And then they say to the woman, this is recorded in scripture, we believe not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know he is indeed the savior of the world. So her actions took the gospel to a new people group and led to many in that town having their own encounter with Jesus. That looks like discipleship multiplication to me. It looks like church planting in its most basic form. So this combination of her holy discontent, her encounter with Jesus, embracing her missionary identity, her evangelistic zeal, the fruit of disciples being made, lead me to summarize that she should be counted among the Apostolic Hall of Fame. I think she sets an example for all of us that will give us courage and inspiration. There you have it. What a great, great woman of faith, Fotina, uh, a woman at the well that has so often been portrayed as, like you said, a sinful woman just in, in uh, receipt of God's grace. But there's so much more to the story, both in scripture and uh, oral mm. tradition as well. Why do you think the church has reduced her story um, to only part of the story in, in so many different parts of the world, in, in the Protestant church at least? I think there was a period of time that we've all grown up in that kind of got stuck on this moralistic version of Christianity. And I think we we saw our faith through morality first. Um, and so I think, and often we come to a story like this and we look for the sin, we look for the black and the white and the, um, I just think we, which made us like, you know, it just made us too narrow in our, in our reading of scripture and our understanding our faith. There is a moral place, right, in our, in our faith and in following Jesus, but there's so much more than just our morality. So I think that's one of the reasons why we just get caught up with sin, which mm. is really an oxymoron because the whole point of Jesus' story is that he wipes away our sin. Let's don't get caught on that. Let's, right? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, just um, the amazing calling that she receives immediately as she recognizes who Jesus is. He's not asked her to confess any sins there and then. He's asked her to go out and and yeah. share. Um, and you were you were touching on the kind of the, the movement dynamics of what she does next, her disciple making um, journey. How important do you think it is that we have these kind of examples of, of disciple making when, when so many of our examples tend to be the male 12 disciples or um, Paul the Apostle or, or whatever? How, how important do you think it is that we discover these um, women who who have actually, like you say, she's been she's been instrumental in sharing her faith with her whole town, and then potentially this has spread through an entire region in the early parts mm. of um, uh, in the early time of of Christianity. Yeah, she may have been the first church planter, really, yeah. if you think yeah. about it. 
And how if you think of church planting in its form. Exactly. How important do you think it is that we recover these female heroes of faith in order to understand disciple making in a, in a broader perspective? I mean, how do I answer how important? The reality is our faith sits in this family framework. We call God our father, Jesus, our brother. We need mothers and fathers. You can't have families without both Hmm. mothers and fathers and so it it's like it is important because um over 50 percent of the you know the whole story are women and um yeah we've we've got to step up to and i think we've got to release and i think we've got to champion both mothers and fathers hmm. so that we can have more families which leads to the discipleship multiplication as you were talking about hmm. And can you tell us a little bit about your journey in terms of, of calling and understanding your gifting as a as a missional woman and as somebody with an apostolic gifting? I think first important bit in my story is that I grew up in the traditions where they didn't um, really believe that the apostolic and the prophetic were for today. Um, and so a lot of my journey just didn't have that framework at all, you know? And so I often tell people, I think I'm a, I'm probably prophetic and then apostolic, you know? Mm -hmm. So I know that if I look back on the history of my life as I was um, following Jesus and stepping out in ministry, I think there were a lot of times probably where I took the credit for ways that were really just Holy Spirit working through me and my gifting, because I didn't know that that was a prophetic gift or an apostolic gift, you know, um, like, I just, I just know that when I learned about the apostolic gift and about the prophetic gift, which for me happened when we came um, over to, you know, England, and now sharing um, an understanding of European history and the believers here have done so much to help me understand the fivefold as well as the Holy Spirit and his work among us. And um, yeah, I just, when I realized that these gifts are still a piece of what God's doing in his church today, I just had to repent. Like, oh my word, I've took credit for stuff, which was actually Holy Spirit and his gift in us. And um, so it has been quite a journey of embracing that. I just think when you carry those gifts, you look back and you've done them your whole life, but you um, maybe didn't recognize that it, it was actually Holy Spirit and the hard wiring he put in you. Um, you know, so if I look back in my journey, I've always been a part of starting things. Um, I've got that, what Rich Robinson calls the goldfish mindset, where you, you know, you're always falling forward and you're all right with it because you just forget that you failed, you know, and you're like, yeah, we can try again. Let's keep trying again. Um, you know, goldfishes have small minds, like, you know, they don't remember things long. Um, yeah, so that, you know, that's just kind of my story of always taking risks and being, you know, being just not having a problem doing that. Um, and then coming to understand that that's just a part of this apostolic prophetic gift that you are just a little more risk taking a little more um able to get up after you fall down and try again mm. yeah it's interesting that you're you're in your story you have experienced the the gifts uh, being activated in you without you being aware 
Um, and I think mm. that's such a beautiful thing with the spirit that you didn't even need to be aware, you know, turning it, turning what you've just said on, on its head that you felt that you needed to repent. But it's also beautiful that the spirit was using you yeah. um, in your hardwiring and in your gifting before you'd become aware of it. But a lot of women would say, you know, that they they hadn't understood that there was a, an apostolic gifting and therefore not been able to live into it so so you're giving us a perspective mm. on how the spirit can can sometimes work through us um despite um despite our theological frameworks or perhaps our weaknesses or whatever it might be which is a beautiful thing i think absolutely and um are there would you say any you've mentioned coming to the uk as as sort of pivotal for your um understanding of the fivefold uh, are there any key mm. moments that you would recall or decisions that you've made perhaps or people that have come into your life where things have sort of clicked for you and you've been able to leverage your apostolic gifting further in your ministry mm. yeah and to be honest i would say that's probably only been in the last five years for because my husband is also apostolic, um, uh, you know, I always just kind of, I've gone with him in his apostolic gift and supported him and didn't really own my own piece of that. You know, I just thought I was supporting him in that. And really in the last five years as we've, um, yeah, just pressed into what God wants to do with us in our leadership, um, I I would probably champion him as one of the, you know, um, He's been so impactful to begin to call that out in me and release that in me and sometimes step back so that I could step forward in my leadership. Um, and I think that takes a lot of humility for a man to do that. But just, And then it just makes me so grateful that he would believe that in me and call that and, you know, kind of give me that push to because um, we've always been let's lead together. Mm-hmm. But now I think in this latter season of life, we're learning actually there's times when you can take the lead and there's times I'll take the lead and and there can be a dance in that because it is all about our gifting and the Holy Spirit and what he's doing. It isn't about our genders. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll, so then I'll mention, um, oh, sorry, just wanted to mention also, I think Rich Robinson, you know, I look to him as a mentor figure in my life. And um, as, as he's coached us, he's always asking the question, what's the movement inside of you? What's the movement inside of you? And I just know that was the first time he asked me that a real key kind of a Kairos moment for it to me to even imagine like, oh, you mean God might want to, there may be a movement that I could lead out in. That was just you know profound for me to even consider. Um, and then a good friend of mine, Nick Harding, who leads the Kairos Connections, which is one of the networks we're connected with here in the UK. Um, he's really been a, a, a gatekeeper or a door opener to give me um, an opportunity to lead out in this area of my, microplanting. Um, and so I, yeah, I just can't thank God enough for the men in my life who've been humble enough to call out my gifts and say, come on, have a go, get up here with us. Mm. Would you highlight to us what are the, perhaps the, the characteristics or the keys that that those men that you see as positive allies for your for your ministry and your apostolic giftings, what what are those things that has sort of enabled you to move forward in in your apostolic gifting? Are there particular 
types of conversations or is there a particular type of support? What 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 is key? I'm thinking that there are men listening mm. perhaps or there are women who need some um, men in their lives to, to, to hear um, that they perhaps need to step forward. So what would you highlight were, were key things that they've done or said that's um, allowed you some space to develop and grow in your gifting? Yeah, I think, I mean, they're kind of buzz, buzzwords, but I think they're true. The platform, I think, you know, sometimes whether it is your physical platform to, to let a woman and give her a place there, or if it is your, um, even just your place in a network of relationships, I think men can be a platform for a woman and give her an opportunity or a word of encouragement or a word of endorsement even. I think it, it just still carries weight. Um, and so it's important. And then I think the buzzword that is going around now as well, agency, you know, giving that agency to say, no, I'm, I'm stepping back here. Go ahead. You got this, that, um, confidence and that real trust to let you have a go. And it's okay. If it, even if it doesn't go perfectly, then let's have a chat and we'll have another go. And, you know, that, that freedom to say, this isn't, I'll give you a chance. And if you fail, I'll step back in and do it. But no, I'm going to give you a chance and we're going to learn and grow and you're going to keep going. Mm -hmm. Mm. Really good. uh, Some really good learning there for for all of us, I think. Are there any particular challenges that you have come across that you think are um, Mm. perhaps particular for apostolic people or for you as an apostolic female? If you're a woman leader living in today, I think you'll relate to this, but I, I, I am very aware as I continue to step out in my um, apostolic leadership and, you know, for me, that's church planting or leading other church planters and um, leading a network. I'm just aware that I still often hear a male voice through my old paradigm. Um, You know, um, one of my partners in ministry or whatever can, they can they, they can say something, and whilst they don't mean it at all to be hierarchical, I still hear it that way, and my knee-jerk reaction is, oh, they probably want me to just get in line, mm-hmm. when they're just having a conversation, and they've asked me to the table, so they're hoping I will point and counterpoint with them, and, you know, so it's really my issue, but it's a challenge, because for so many years, that hierarchical, you have your place, stay with the children and the women, um, it's just ingrained, you know, it's just kind of having to break that paradigm and trust the men at the table and not give in to the voice of the enemy who's always accusing us with things that aren't true, mm-hmm. you know, and just having to fight that, fight that mental battle. Um, mm. yeah, yeah, I just think that's a real thing. Yeah, that is yeah, a and real there's, thing. There's... <laughs> For sure, right. I can testify I just... to that. <laughs> Yeah, I just came out of a staff meeting with my, you know, I was having to say to him, I know you don't mean it this way, but I have to work hard to not hear, you know, it's just how it goes. Yeah, having those honest conversations, perhaps then is is quite useful. Being in a, um, in a place where you feel safe or brave enough to be able to have that conversation and say, yeah, you know, this makes me feel this way. Maybe that's not what, not what you meant. Um, yeah. yeah, having more yeah. transparent yeah. open conversations. Yeah, yeah. And then you know, the, like we were talking about it before, wasn't we? But the the men, good men, good godly men around you to to remind you, 
yeah, but I'm not thinking that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like just continue to reinforce the, the, the way of Jesus when it comes to women, which we see in the woman at the well, right? Like he wasn't thinking hierarchical, even though mm-hmm. he could have, he was the son of God, but he's meeting her in that, you know, and having that face to face on the same ground kind of conversation. And I've got some work for you to partner with me to do. Come on, let's do it. Mm. Yeah. What are the signs of hope, do you think, for apostolic women in this time in comparison to perhaps 10 years ago or when you were growing up? Oh, man, I I love the cultural moment we're in. I think it's like it has never been more exciting for us as women. I think the fact that God is moving us all to think network, to think decentralized leadership, to think um, leadership is about who's with you, not who's over you, um, an awareness of the fivefold. You know, all of that plays into our favor. In fact, I think we're going to have to be the ones women. I think we're going to have to champion the the men because they could be they could feel less empowered because of the new freedom that some of us are finding. And so I think we're going to have to um, love each other well through that. Mm -hmm. But um, for women, I just think the landscape is ripe for us to be used to by Jesus to do all sorts of things. And the sky's the limit, really, you know, and the as long as we're hearing from the Spirit and He says, yes, go, I, I just think that's the moment we're living in, right? So, yeah. um, exciting time. I think, yeah, I think we have the, uh, the potential to um, really unlock a stalemate that has been in the church for a lot of years, and that has been for women who are find themselves married to men who don't believe. Mm-hmm. That I don't know if you know where you've traveled in churches, but those women have often just felt like, "What can I do? My husband isn't with me." And I, I just think some of the new forms and the ways that we're thinking are going to really allow those women to be empowered while they're living that faithful life, waiting for Jesus to bring their husband to him. Mm-hmm. They don't have to nothing while they're waiting. I think they're going to have a, a place and a, um, a position to lead from. So, yeah. That's exciting. What would you say um, is your greatest passion or dream for this time, for your own apostolic ministry, or that you feel Jesus is drawing, in, drawing you into at this um, important time in history? Yeah, my passion is just to be caught up in this wave of the renewal of what church looks like. I believe that God is um, taking us into a whole turn of a century. I don't even know if that's the right word, but a whole turn of a generation, a new wineskin for the church to, to live in and for new disciples to be birthed in. And I think that has to do with um, this decentralization and empowering of us all to really be the priesthood of all believers, which we we all say we believed, but we weren't living into. And I just think God's calling us to do that now, to really, that we all own our calling and we get busy making disciples and then the church is birthed. And I think we're positioning ourselves um, all over the world. I'm meeting people every week. We're positioning ourselves to be able to hold the space for that and let the church be the church and let Jesus do with it what he wants to do with it um, without us 
trying to fit it in our little boxes. And so I'm just super excited. And uh, that's why we're stepping out to lead a network of microchurches here in the UK. We're gathering people who want to hear their missionary call. And we're just getting behind them and saying, come on, you can do this. We'll help support you. Um, we want to see you do the thing God's calling you to do. So if I can get caught up in that wave, yeah, that's my passion. That'll be life well lived. That sounds like an amazing wave to surf. Could you just give us a couple of examples of micro churches that are being birthed through your network? Because I'm sure people will be curious hearing about those. Yeah, I mean, we're we're brand new and we're just getting started. We've probably got six um, micro churches that are happening. Some look like house churches traditionally, um, but we're really working hard to be a missional community within those churches. So we measure um, a church by whether or not is it is expressing in some way worship, community, mission, discipleship, and then it has accountable leaders within it. And so we've got people that are reaching into um, homeschool groups. The homeschooling is, a, is a, actually a growing phenomenon here in the UK. And so they're reaching into those places. Um, my husband and I were starting a new um, missional community around basketball and sport in our neighborhood. Um, I just spoke to a lady yesterday who's on the coast um, in the south of England who's um, started a microchurch on the beach. And in the summer months, they meet right on the beach and just, you know, whoever's around and they're doing discovery Bible study and they're seeing people's lives changed. Um, yeah, so a lot of it is neighborhood focused, you know, mm -hmm. so our, our very first microchurch that we would say is um, we've seen Jesus birth his church and that was around a coffee shop in the middle of the neighborhood. And so those are just some examples. Mm -hmm. Exciting to hear. We need more good news stories in Europe as well. So, so grateful yeah. to have talked to you today, uh, Christy, and we've been able to add Fatina to our Apostolic Hall of Fame. So thank yeah. you very much for coming on the Venture 12 podcast in collaboration with the Movement Leaders Collective. See you soon. For having me, yeah. This was the Apostolic Hall of Fame with the Venture 12 podcast in collaboration with the Movement Leaders Collective. Five contemporary apostles, five historical apostles. To enter the poll and have your say on which historical figure is the most deserving of entering the Apostolic Hall of Fame, see the podcast description below. If you like this mini-series and would like to hear more like it, let us know by liking and subscribing and by engaging with us on our social media. This is Emma Cottrell for the Venture 12 podcast. Thanks for listening.